heard of the ash conformity experiment. Has anyone heard of that? It may start to ring bell. Helen, you have. Um, uh, So this guy, um, Solomon Ash, was around in the 1950s, and he did some uh, relatively famous experiments, um, working out to what extent people conform to the majority view. So he got seven participants, and one of them was genuine, and six of them were actors, but the one who was genuine had no idea that the other six were actors. And he showed them things like this. So he put up a card like the one on the left, and then he'd take that card away and he'd put up the next card exactly the same size, and he'd say, which one did you see, A, B, or C? And as the participants were there, um, for the first six or seven goes, all seven would go for the correct answer. And then gradually, the number who went for the correct answer reduced, but completely unbeknownst to the, unbeknownst to the genuine partner. And um, uh, apparently, with, when they're all, all were unanimous, or even when only three were um, saying untruth, um, but selecting a different truth to the others, um, then um, uh, uh, the, the genuine participants got it right. But if four or more of the actors together said something different, then 75% of those who were tested went with the majority view. And um, their responses were very interesting. Sometimes they just went quiet and changed their answer to the, to subtly. Um, other times they showed doubt but then went with the view. Um, and um, it's quite an interesting thing about how we might be in danger of conforming because one of the things of Peter's letter is he shows us that we have a radically different identity so that we might live radically different lives in a world that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I wonder if you could just have a discussion around your tables. If there aren't enough of you, then perhaps turn around and chat to others. Um, what would you need to... What would you need... What could you tell a participant of that Ash conformity experiment to ensure that they didn't just conform? What would they need to know? What would help them to not just conform? Just have a discussion in your groups for a few minutes. Okay, let me um, interrupt you. What kind of things would you say to stop someone conforming in that situation? What would help them to go with the correct answer? The directions. <laughs> exactly that. So, yeah, and what, what would then happen? You wouldn't trust the word of it, and you just go with his own view. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be the ultimate way to do it. Hey, you're among a bunch of actors here. Don't, don't be duped. Um, what other things could you say? Anyone have any different answers now? in the fact that you're right. Okay. Yeah, trusting what you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so confidence in your... But if they sort of had low sort of confidence in their IQ, if they hadn't done that well at school... Try and justify your own position and then ask for someone else to justify theirs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then the actors might sway you all the more. Yeah. <laughs> I would say, listen to the others, but, have, yeah, but then have confidence in your truth or your your knowledge. Mm. So yeah. it's not going to put your head in the ground and just ignore anyone else. Yeah. Listen to them, um, but know where your truth comes from. Yeah. In particular for the first six questions, yeah. they need a brief to get the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do, but I do think the ultimate one, sorry, I don't know your name. Chris. Chris. I think Chris was absolutely spot on. Completely, it would obviously destroy the experiment. <laughs> but, actually, isn't that what's happening in 1 Peter? Isn't Peter destroying the experiment, the experiment of the world to try and make us conform, perhaps the experiment of the devil to try and make us conform 
to the world's way of thinking. Because 1 Peter so far, he's told us that we have a holy identity, and that should lead us to holy action. And holy, as we've looked at before, means radically different, or set apart for God. But the sort of just direct meaning of it is radically different. It doesn't mean a set of moral behaviours. It just means distinct, set apart, um, and specifically set apart for God, who is ultimately set apart, who is ultimately holy. And last time we looked at this overarching heading for the passage which includes ours from 1 Peter 1, 22 through to uh, verse 12 that we've just read. And um, we saw that I put that under the heading of a holy or radically different community. Uh, that is what we are. And last, last time when we gathered, we um, looked at holy family and the fact that because we've come to God as our father, we are his children and as his obedient children, we don't conform any longer to the world around us. Uh, but instead, we love. We have a radically different love for our brothers and sisters. And as a family, we're being built and shaped together. And then the second part of this theme under a holy community is uh, the verses we're looking at today. A holy house. Um, and you'll see more of why we've got there. So, down into the passage. first point is there on your sheets, um, and these bits are there so that it will help you to concentrate, but also so you can jot down um, the key things that would help you to communicate some of these truths to other Christians who aren't here, and uh, to those who aren't Christians. So perhaps be thinking, how can we take the message we're being taught by God and go out uh, with this message, and we'll see that that's one of the key applications of the passage anyway. Um, so, radically different identity leads to radically different actions. So we're going to start with the radically different identity. And Peter gives us uh, that here. You are heaven, God's house on earth. And we'll see um, more and more of that. Um, who you are, your identity as heaven on earth, will shape what you do. So we're going to then see the implication in the second point on action. But let's dive into the passage. So, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 4, you've got that in front of you on your sheets. As you come to him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, or footnote, a temple of the Holy Spirit, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A spiritual house. The word for house there could also mean household or home, but also temple. And actually the word in the Old Testament for the Old Testament temple also meant house or home or household. So often we think of a building when we think of temple. But first and foremost, the temple was the dwelling place of God among his people. Now it's hard to overemphasize the importance of the temple in the Jewish mind in the Old Testament. If you ask the Jew, where does God reside or dwell with his people? In the temple. And where can I go and meet with God? In the temple. And where can I hear 
the word of God taught and explained in the temple. And where can I go to have my sins forgiven? In the temple. And what is the epicentre of God's mission to the world? The temple. And Peter takes this temple language and he says, as we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the living stone, the cornerstone of that temple, we, as members of his body, we as living stones, are no longer a physical building, we're not a national institution, we are a gathered people, a community, a church, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his good news. And so... These are the truths he wants to sink deep into our hearts, to shape our understanding of our identity, to help us realise perhaps that there are not actors out there, but people who are consistently getting it wrong. And as the gathered, redeemed people of God, he wants us to answer those questions. Where does God reside as well with his people? The church, God's new community, the living stones. Where do people meet with God? The church. You, here and now. And all those who trust in Christ. But when we're gathered as living stones, there is a deeper experience of the presence of God than we could ever have on our own. Where can I hear the word of the Lord taught and explained? In the church, among the gathering of the living stones of God's temple, his presence on earth. Church is where we minister the good news of the fact that our sins are forgiven to each other. It's where we can confess our sins together and be reminded of the gospel. Church is the epicentre of God's mission to the world. It's where we gather to be sent out as God's redeemed community. It's interesting that the language of uh, the temple or the tabernacle in uh, the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, um, when God had rescued his people out of Egypt and was taking them to the promised land and telling them to build a tent, a tabernacle, a temple, uh, for him to dwell among his people. The instructions were very, very exact. And Moses, who was leading that construction project, had to get it absolutely right and make sure all the expert builders... We're doing things in line because we're told he was doing it in line with the pattern that he was given by God of what heaven is like. Now, of course, that temple was only um, an illustration, a picture, but a very, very deeply symbolic one. So much so that there was a sense in which with God residing there, if you came into the very presence of God without your sins having been forgiven, you'd die. Because sinful people in the presence of a holy God cannot exist, like um, germs coming into contact with pure domestos bleach, just die like that, because they can't exist in the presence of something so clean and so pure. And that exact pattern was a perfect cube, we're told, the Holy of Holies, the very centre of the temple was a perfect cube, and that was a picture of the perfection of heaven. But then in Revelation, at the end of the Bible, chapter 21, where we're told that um, those who are redeemed and rescued are being gathered together to come and meet the Lord Jesus Christ as, as his bride, as his family, we're told also that they're like a city, and the dimensions of that city are a perfect cube. 
which is following that pattern, that temple pattern. And so if we're being described as the living stones being built into a spiritual house, into a temple for the Holy Spirit, then we are a picture of heaven now, yes, but also the new creation. So we weak people, we small in number, we are a picture. We're designed to be a community that reflects what we will be like for all eternity in the new creation. And Jesus is the building block who shapes that whole building. Let's see that a bit more as we zoom into verse 6. Peter writes, For in scripture it says, so he's quoting the Old Testament, quoting uh, Isaiah 28 here, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, there are two responses here. Verse 7. First, there's belief and trust in that precious cornerstone. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. And that is our experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is like a, a cornerstone. I've been seeing a bit of a building project going on in our back garden at the moment. It's going on a bit too long, for my liking. Um, but we're having an office built, um, church office. And it was really interesting seeing it start out. Because they did literally get, um, well actually two blocks in this case, and put them together in the corner. And then they used a, a, sort of a wire that they, they tightened, uh, and tightened and tightened and tightened. And everything came off that corner. Everything was shaped by that corner. And um, everything was brought in line with that. Well, in Old Testament times, in uh, days before they just built breeze blocks, um, they would select the perfect, large, massive, correctly dimensioned stone. And everything else would be shaped and measured according to that. And everything had to line up to that. And... To you who believe, to us who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ, who have seen his perfect life lived, that he lived the life that we fail to live. And it is so attractive, and we see that he has the answer, that his claims about himself, that he is God in the flesh, God on earth, come to rescue us and bring us into relationship with God. He is precious, and we put our trust in him, and he begins to shape us. But then there's another reaction, as verse 7 continues, that of rejection. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And you know what? Our response to Jesus, whether we put our trust in him or whether we reject him, says far more about us than it does about him. Because God's verdict is already clear. His verdict was clear in that passage from Isaiah, quoted in verse 6. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. God's verdict is very clear. And God is the master builder and the architect and the shaper and the controller all in one. And he says his view of the Lord Jesus. And so our response to him doesn't make any difference to God's view. So the majority doesn't matter at all. Because God is the architect, God is the source of life, and his opinion is the only one that matters. And his opinion is the truth. And so whether we're in a group of seven and six people are saying, 
No, I think Jesus is a load of rubbish. Or only two are. We need to be listening to God's response, not conforming to the majority. And you see, when we reject Jesus, we see what happens in verse 8. Not only has Jesus become the cornerstone, even though people rejected him, he is a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, or the word, which is also what they were destined for. You see, if a builder is employed by uh, an architect or a chief executive of a company, and that builder rejects the plans of the owner or the architect and does his own thing, what, what happens? That's not just a rhetorical question. What happens if the builder just does his own thing? It gets fired. It gets fired, and what happens to his building? Knocked down. It's knocked down. Start again. Yeah, start again. At his own expense. He doesn't get paid, he gets fired, that's it. All that he's done is destroy it, and it starts again. And that's not just harshness on behalf of the owner or the architect. That is justice. That is exactly the right thing. Because if someone pays someone and gives them very clear plans, this is the way it's supposed to be built. And then they reject that. The justice is that their building gets torn down at their own expense. God's verdict matters. His choice matters. And so trust in his cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember your identity. When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told that our identity changes. And Peter, just in case we missed it at the beginning, reminds us again in verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Peter is quoting here, Uh, pretty much quoting and taking words from Exodus chapter 19, again, where um, the people have been brought out of Egypt and, and Moses tells them facts about themselves. And he says, God has brought you out of Egypt, carried you on eagle's wings and brought him to yourself. And then the Lord says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak. And that was only a picture of which we are the reality. And so if you understand who you are by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will, of course, shape how you think and what you do. And I think one of the key things I want us to to see by way of application to to what we do and how we think, is firstly that this rids us of a sense of individualism. Because what Peter says here is, you too, plural, are like living stones, verse 5, being built into a spiritual house. So you can't be a living stone on your own. If you imagine the beautiful building project, but each stone was just placed randomly all over the place. The architect's plans wouldn't look great once they were built. You're only a temple. You're only a spiritual house together. We are being built together. One brick next to another, totally in line, as I described from watching the building project in our back garden. And just imagine if 
the building was built on the principle of individualism. So, random bricks have roads, doing their own thing, badly. It, it would be a sorry sight, it would just be a pile of rubble, it would be unimpressive. In fact, it would look much like this world does. So, this world likes the idea of community, and yet individualism trumps it, doesn't it? Um, and so, what I do, what I feel like, goes. And if that clashes with someone else, well, only the law of society will protect us. And when society breaks down, you see war and pain and frustration as individuals trying to do their own thing um, get lost. But we can bring that mentality into the church as well. And we can think, oh, well, my plan for my life is this, my ambition for my life is that. And I like church to the extent that they help me to be a good person while I'm heading towards that. But actually, if this is true, then God's plan for our lives is much more significant. And how he has used us and how he has made us a living stone within that building project is much more important. And we need to work together and think together and pray together in response to his word as to how he is shaping us uh, as the local church to be that picture of the living temple. So that as people look on, they think, God is doing something extraordinary there. And it is the place they gravitate to, to see God at work. And I think we need to realise that being built can be very painful. One of the things I've heard watching this building project a lot is, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's that kind of um, stone grinder cutter. It makes that really high-pitched, loud noise that means you can't think of anything else while it's going on. And although it's painful for me to listen to, imagine if there was a living stone there, it would be especially painful for the living stone as it gets cut into shape. And if you imagine Old Testament living stones, or stones, being cut up, each one would need to be shaped, each one would need to be chiseled, because they couldn't just create bricks uh, like breeze blocks today. Being built can be painful, and you might need to be cut down to size. Those of you who are there on Wednesday will know that um, I feel like this is a particular cutting down society's moment for me, a very painful moment for me. And yet, in that, as Paul says, we can rejoice in our trials and sufferings because um, God is shaping us. Um, God is making us into the people he wants us to be, and that is part of his building project. You may need to be cut down to size, you may need to be turned completely upside down and shifted into a different place to what you'd imagined. You will need to be upheld and supported by the other bricks in the building project, don't you? Because you can't just do it on your own. You can't just be in the place that you want to be. No, you need to be supported and lifted up. And, and then you yourself will need to provide support and structure to others. And then be cemented into place. I know I'm playing with the illustration quite a lot, but you need to, what is very clear is you need to line up perfectly with the cornerstone the Lord Jesus Christ, who shapes the whole building. And we're told in Romans chapter 8 that God's ultimate purpose for us is to conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll do that through sufferings and trials of all kinds. So where can I meet with God? Well, I need to be with his people in the temple. And um, 
This reminded me again of our, our vision points. We've got three vision points, uh, shameless in worship, shameless in community, shameless in mission. It reminded me of the first one, which we've subdivided. So, uh, shameless in worship. And the first point under that is enjoying God's presence as we gather as his redeemed people. Where can I meet with God? Well, the psalmists were very clear it was at the temple. But the temple was only a picture of what we are in reality. Living stones being built together as the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And so, as much as we can have great times of prayer and devotion on our own, actually, the times when we'll really experience the presence of God is when we gather together. It won't always be easy, but we enjoy God's presence more as we gather as his redeemed people than we can on our own. And so, also, we need to... Um, as our second subheading under this shameless in worship says, we need to be shamelessly prayerful, asking God to make us that. It's an extraordinary thing that we would be his holy temple, his dwelling place, um, a place, that his mission strategy to the world. And so we need to be shameless in praying to him for the very thing he has promised to us, to conform us to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, and then under this heading of being shameless in worship as well, so that we would live radically different lives. And that's exactly what Peter is teaching us in 1 Peter. Understanding our identity in Christ will lead to radically different action. And that brings us to our second main heading, which is there on your sheets. Action. Our action is, well, because you are heaven, God's house on earth, so that you can bring earth to heaven. You are heaven on earth, so that you can bring earth to heaven hopefully that's catchy enough for you to remember you are heaven on earth so you can bring earth to heaven but it's also there (laughs) directly in the passage I'm not just playing with catchy ideas let's have a look at the second half of verse 9 I'll read the whole of verse 9 but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession you are heaven on earth that so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful world. Your purpose is, I think first and foremost under this, there are two kinds of purpose in terms of um, bringing earth to heaven. And the first is, speak out the goodness of God. Your purpose is to speak out the goodness of God. And that's there in that bit of verse 9. That you may declare the praises of him. That word declare... Um, could also be translated, or is also translated in the ESV, proclaim. It literally means message out, or speak out. Um, And speak out boldly. In fact, it's got the same kind of root as the word gospel. So the gospel is good message, and this is out message. Um, So the gospel is a declaration, a proclamation. um, And this is saying, the very reason that you have been given all these extraordinary privileges. It's so that you would speak out. And the word praises, I think, isn't that helpful. Again, in the ESV translation, it says the excellencies. When we think declare the praises, we think of singing, and of course it includes singing. But actually, it's so much more than that. It's, it's to speak out the, the wonder of all that God is. And so that doesn't just mean when we gather together to sing course we gather together to sing and that's a wonderful thing and we want people who don't know Jesus to come in and hear us singing to him but actually this is so much bigger than just gathering together to sing but it is, it really is, it absolutely is a together thing so often when we think 
You're encouraged to speak out. You're encouraged to go out and evangelise. We think, there's that guy in the office who I need to probably talk to and I should pray for an opportunity. Yes, 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 do that. But actually it's a together thing. So we need to think, okay, who else can I gather with? Thinking back to the Ash Conformity Experiment. Just imagine that um, one of those actors rebelled and thought, this is unfair on this poor guy. I know that this is a bit of a joke and we mustn't lie to him. And so went with him and partnered with him and always told the truth and did so boldly and with a real confidence and encouraged him to do the same. Suddenly, even if there were another five people absolutely adamant it was something else, you'd think, yeah, they would speak up. And in that sense, we need to think, how can we do this as a together thing? How can we speak out God's praises? Because he has done something amazing. Do you see, verse 9 continues, he has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are the called out community. We're called out of darkness, of, of not knowing, of, of thinking, is that true? I'm not sure it is, but the majority seems to be going that way. Okay, I'll just go with it. We've been called out of that to be different, to be distinct. Because we've been called into God's wonderful light where we can see. We can see what our purpose and meaning and direction is. The church is God's primary mission strategy to a dying world. And so God has called us out to join with him in calling others out of darkness into his wonderful light. And it might be tempting with all these amazing truths about our identity to, to be filled with a bit of pride. It may be... If there were those who don't believe this listening in, they'd be thinking, how can you be so arrogant about your extraordinary identity? And, and, and yeah, okay, yes, I can see with that simple ash conformity experiment that they should have stuck to their guns and not gone with the majority, but surely it's not that clear. How can you be so arrogant? Why have you got the truth? But this completely undermines pride. In fact, there's no, there's no room for pride, and pride itself would destroy the message that we seek to proclaim because verse 10... Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Don't think that in and of yourselves you deserve this, that you have some right to this, that you are somehow better than others. No, once you were not a people, you were just like everyone else. But God in his grace and Well, we'll see in the next bit. Mercy has called us out and made us the people of God. Once you have not received mercy. Mercy, not merit. Mercy, not merit. I think this is a helpful way to explain to anyone uh, the difference between Christianity and anything else. Two five-letter words beginning with M. Every other religion says. Every other religion and philosophy, even atheism in terms of achieving something in life, says you achieve stuff on the basis of merit, on the basis of what you do, you earn it, you are rewarded for your behaviour. So in Islam, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you go to hell. In Buddhism, if you, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you head up in a cycle towards nirvana. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you head down in a cycle towards a different kind of reincarnation, similar in Hinduism as well. And yet, Christianity is utterly unique and in that sense is not a religion at all. And we need to emphasise this. And this is a great way to kind of 
talk about things and start a conversation. What is it that makes you different? Well, you know what makes us different? Is it's not because of anything we've done. But actually, Christianity isn't a religion in that sense. You don't have to be a good person. In fact, you need to recognise that you're the worst of the worst. That you can't earn your way to God at all. That there's not many paths up a mountain that you have to climb. There's a precipice, and you're at the bottom of it, and there's no way up. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come down and lived that perfect life. And he lifts us up. Not because of anything we deserve, but because he was that precious cornerstone who was rejected. And it's interesting that the Lord Jesus quotes from Isaiah 28 and Psalm 18 when he's going to the cross and the Pharisees are are asking him how dare he preach like this and he says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's talking about himself. And he says you're going to reject me but you will see that I will be raised again. But as he died on that cross, as he was rejected, in his very rejection. He was being destroyed so that we don't have to. You know, if your building, if your building project is not according to God's, it will just be destroyed, and that is justice. But Jesus' building project is the perfect building project. And yet he chose, he came down to be destroyed instead of us. And as he hung there on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was destroyed so that we might be restored when we trust in him. Because he, death couldn't hold him. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And so now he is the living cornerstone. And all who trust in him can be rebuilt into this wonderful spiritual house. We deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. But in the Lord Jesus Christ we've been given everything. But it's worth noting that if the qualification for entry into the people of God is receiving mercy... If that's the qualification, then what do you think we're going to look like as more people join us? We're going to be a mess. We're going to be a messy building site. And we're going to be a lot more frustrating to each other than the building project in my back garden is to me, as the builders take an awfully long time. We're going to be very frustrating to each other. Because the qualification to come in is to be a complete mess. (laughs) To recognise that you need mercy. And only then will the Lord Jesus start building us together. We're not told you become a perfect building, completed building project. No, we're being built together. And so we should expect messed up people. And we should admit our failures. And say, look, I think there's a rough edge here that isn't actually fitting in. Please pray with me that this bit would be cut off. Rather than saying, hey, look, I'm absolutely perfect. And everyone is wondering, is that just a veneer? Is that just faking it? We should be able to confess our sins openly. We're not putting on a show here. We're coming to be transformed by the mercy of God. Because our only qualification in the first place was mercy. And then we need to speak out. And we need to be serious about being changed. About getting rid of the mess. About working together. About depending on God by His Spirit to shape and change us. Because our lives need to be consistent with our words. And that's... The last little subsection. The way you bring earth to heaven is to live out the goodness of God. Live out the goodness of God. Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as... There's that reminder phrase he's used before, foreigners and exiles. 
You are a bunch of weirdos. You are radically different, and people will think you are total losers and weirdos and Jesus freaks. But you need to remember that that is to be expected and not worry about what the other six are saying. Go with what God is saying. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Some of these wars are internal. And the issue is not having desires. The issue is that they are sinful desires. And so the reason that Peter is giving us all these wonderful truths about what we can be, what we are in Christ, who we are in Christ, and what we can become as we're built together is so that we would defeat those sinful desires with a much greater desire of being a beautiful, radically different community who love one another as an intimate family. And the result of that, verse 12, is that we would live such good lives, such radically different lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and they themselves glorify God on the day he visits us. Because you have, as it were, as heaven on earth, a picture of the redeemed community, of that new temple, of the living stones, gathered together. They've seen that. They've seen the integrity of that. And initially they insulted you as being a bunch of weirdos and Jesus freaks. But then they think, no, I want to join that. And so they glorify God on the day he visits us. When the Lord Jesus returns, they will be part of that living temple. And they've got to know your identity, otherwise living those good lives just doesn't make any sense. You've got to speak out. And you've got to say the hard things. I have received mercy. You have not received mercy. That gives me no room for pride, but it does mean that God describes you as not my people. God describes you as not having received mercy. This is serious. You need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to speak out, and we need to face the insults that will come with that. We need to speak out because if we don't, people will look on and they'll think, oh, that looks like a rather nice bunch of people. I wonder if I could end up being like them. I had a story of a chief executive who was a keen Christian, but he decided that it was much better to um, just live a good life and hopefully his employees would know that Jesus is worth following just by him living a good life. But he didn't mention that he was a Christian. And there was an employee of his who was being witnessed to by a couple of colleagues and friends outside. And... um, he said, I can see that Jesus has changed your lives. But look at this guy. Look at the CEO. He's lived such a lovely life. And he doesn't follow Jesus. And so, you know, if I can be like him and not have to follow Jesus, then that's absolutely fine. Anyway, one day he was converted. And the CEO summoned him in. He said, you know, it's a wonderful thing that you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, it's wonderful that you've uh, joined his family. And the guy responded, do you know that you are the very reason that it took me an extra couple of years to come to Jesus? <laughs> Yes, we must live these radically different lives, but it must be very clear that it's the Lord Jesus who's shaping us. And actually, you know, if we don't talk about the gospel, how Jesus is shaping us and changing us, and that we've received mercy, then people might know we're Christians, but they'll think being a Christian is about being a good person, earning your way to heaven. And you know what, I can see that they're perhaps slightly above average, but actually they're pretty rubbish, and I don't really want... Whereas if we talk about having received mercy, then when we're rubbish, we can say, I messed up, that's not how I want to live. But it's amazing how a few guys at church gathered around me this weekend and prayed with me. And I'm so sorry about what I did and the way I lost my temper in the office the other day. And that will just blow their minds because no one apologises like that in the office. We are a holy community. And if we live radically different lives, then people will realise what is radically different about us. They'll see that integrity and they'll want to join with us. And so one of the things that we need to be discussing around the tables in this last section 
is how can we be that? How can we together live the radically different, such good lives? What is it, is it about my life plan at the moment? What, what is my goal for my life that is not being influenced by other living stones in the church? What am I trying to achieve? What wealth am I aiming for? What house am I trying to build for myself? What career am I trying to build for myself? What godly plans? These are things that I want to be a missionary for the Lord Jesus, but I'm not doing it together with others. We need to do this together because you are heaven on earth so that you might bring earth to heaven. So let's get very, very excited about our gatherings and ask God to fill us afresh with his Holy Spirit so that we might experience his presence as we gather together here on Sunday and in small groups. And let's depend on him in shameless prayer so that we can be his primary mission strategy to Streatham and to the world beyond in the way we speak and the way we act. Why don't we pray together? Our Father, thank you so much for the wonder and clarity of your word, the way that you are shaping us to be your spiritual house, to be the temple on earth. We think of those extraordinary things said about the temple in the Old Testament, and yet your people then failed again and again and again to live up to that. But they were not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not um, indwelt corporately by your Holy Spirit, equipped to be your primary mission strategy to go out. And what they had was only a shadow of the reality that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would equip us uh, to be those radically different people. We pray that we would be thinking together in our small groups, in our prayer triplets, in our one-to-ones, how is it that the Lord wants to shape me, not to be a lone ranger, but to be a living stone, conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, built together to be his primary mission strategy to a dying world. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.